an opportunity that we have here this morning. Thanks to Wayne and the worship team. That was an awesome set. I really enjoyed that a lot. Um, I want to start off the morning with a question, and uh, here's my question. Think about this. What does a CEO of a publicly owned company, a babysitter, and a born-again Christian all have in common? It's not a joke. Three guys walked into a bar. It's not that. I know that's what, that's what I was thinking. Um, the, the thing that a CEO, a babysitter, and a Christian all have in common is that they are all stewards of somebody else's stuff. Okay? They've all been entrusted to care for something that belongs to somebody else. And so very simply, we're going to talk about this issue of biblical stewardship, and a steward, by definition, is somebody who manages another man's wealth or his business or whatever it might be, for a period of time. So the steward is placed in charge of something that doesn't belong to him. He's placed in charge of that for a period of time until the owner, the manager, whoever it might be, uh, returns. And the thing that I want us to understand about stewardship, first and foremost, it is a privilege. It's a wonderful privilege that we get to be entrusted with some level of wealth and value that is actually not ours, but we've been entrusted with that. I, I don't know about you. I mean, think back, for example, to um, those of you, uh, most all of you in here drive a car. Think back to the very first time you got your driver's license and your dad let you take the family car out for the first time all alone. And you were like, and it might have been a big woody station wagon. It doesn't matter what it was. You were like, this is the coolest ride because I'm driving it by myself. He entrusted you with that for that moment of time. And, and how did you feel? You were like, this is so cool. I can't wait to get my own. And, uh, but you had to do a good job of making sure you took care of dads every so often before dad would let you probably go ahead and get your own. And we'll see how that kind of plays out. But if you're a, a chief executive officer of some publicly stock-owned company, then, then you're not the owner of that company. It's the public that owns the company, but they trust you to manage it right so that you can turn a profit. Certainly, uh, we think of a very simple job for teenagers coming up. Oftentimes, they babysit. But my goodness, what greater treasure is it that somebody could entrust you than their children for a period of time? And we as Christians have been entrusted with some amazing things that God has given to us to be stewards over for a period of time. Because there will be a day, by the way, the Lord returns and takes over for himself. But in the meantime, he has entrusted it to us. He has entrusted us with the gospel. He's entrusted us with the care of his business here on earth during this time called the church age. So it's a great privilege that he, just think God Almighty, he could have done anything. He entrusted us to be able to care for that. But at the same time that it's a privilege and the same time that it's an honor, it's also a test. Our life now and how we handle the stewardship God has entrusted to us is truly and literally a test of how we will do later as well. And so you begin, you always begin, whether it's with your dad's car before you get your own or whether it's working a job under somebody else before maybe someday you get the opportunity to run your own company or business, it's a test. And that, that is played out for us in Luke chapter 16. It says this, and if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? It's a biblical principle. We all have to prove our faithfulness in a level while we're taking care of something that doesn't belong to us, before we can ever truly be trustworthy 
in having our very own stuff and think that we can manage it properly. And so that's a very clear principle. The one overriding requirement in all the scripture that that tells us what it is that God expects of stewards comes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and the first two verses. It says, let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. The requirement that God asks of each and every one of us with the stewardship that he has given to us is faithfulness. To be full of faith, to entrust, to to care for his wealth and business that he's entrusted to us faithfully. And we're going to see in some detail today what that really means and how that really plays out. This is not going to be a typical stewardship message that maybe you've heard in time past and thinking about some details of areas. If your mind is going somewhere, just don't let it go there. Let's just follow what God has for us today because I believe that he really wants to show us some things. Listen, it makes sense, doesn't it, that the steward must be faithful? I mean, if I'm a wealthy man and I have some goods that need to be taken care of and I have to go on a trip and I'm going to entrust you to take care of my business, okay, I desperately need, I expect for you to take care of my business the same way that I would take care of it if I were here to take care of it. I mean, why else would I place you in charge of that? I'd place somebody else in charge of it who would take care. I don't need for you to take my stuff and to go use it for your personal gain or agenda, ignoring what my agenda is, because it's my stuff, right? I mean, that just makes perfect sense. And that's what God expects of all of us. By the way, if you do faithfully manage the affairs of somebody else, you know what always goes along together with that? Rewards. Rewards. And so God is faithful to do all that for us too. So before we jump into this and look at our points that God has for us, let's just pray, let's clear our minds, and let's prepare for what he has. Let's pray. First and foremost, Lord, we just do want to humbly say thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he died on the cross for our sins. Thank you that he rose again, offered to us eternal life. All of us, Lord, who have received you as our personal Lord and Savior, we've entered into new life. Our our life is yours. and, And yet, Lord, when we think of that, we think of all that you have now trusted to us. You call us your body. And by being the body of Christ, you've given to your body the stewardship of running your affairs. Thank you. Thank you for that. And Lord, it is an awesome responsibility and please help us that we'd be found faithful. Father, we really need to hear from you and so we ask as we enter into this time of study and as we look into your word, as we consider these principles that you would teach us today, that your Holy Spirit would lead us and guide us and teach us your word and give us understanding And help us to see ourselves, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, in the mirror, which is your word. And then to assess the stewardship and to to react and to respond and to answer accordingly. Lord, we love you and we submit all this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first way that I want us to look at this, and there's two main ways I want us to look at this, is how it's applied. The first case, how it applies to each of us, to each and every one of us as individuals, Because each and every one of us as a Christian, and I'm speaking to those of you who have received the Lord Jesus as your Savior, if you are here 
and for some reason that's still a bit of a mystery to you. You're not sure what that's all about. Um, you know, maybe you'll get it as we go along. That's fine. But I want you to understand, most all of us here would say that we have already made that decision to receive Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. And to us, God has given a stewardship. And there is a personal and individual responsibility to each and every one of us that God expects. And the first issue, and we're going to look at two issues in each of these categories, and the first issue that I want us to just clear off, I want you to understand this just as clear and clean as you possibly can from the Word of God, it's an issue of ownership. It's an issue of ownership. And if you don't get this, nothing else is going to matter, nothing else is going to make sense to you. We were in 1 Corinthians, first couple of verses. We jumped down to verse number 7 in 1 Corinthians 4 where it says this, For who maketh thee to differ from another? Notice, and what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? In other words, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and he's saying, whatever it is you have, don't act pridefully, don't boast. That, that would be the meaning of glory. Why are you glorying? Why are you proud in the sense that you have all of these wonderful gifts and abilities and opportunities and resources Don't boast in that as though you did it yourself. What you have, you have from God. You are not your own. And we're going to see that in just a second. But the whole idea is this. Listen, the Corinthian church was a church full of people who were intelligent. They were gifted. They were blessed. They were comfortable. I mean, they had a good thing going on. They were well provided for. And Paul says, oh, by the way, that sound familiar? Paul says, don't be so foolish as to think that you did all that. You were just blessed to be born at the right time in the right place among the right group of people to be able to have the things that you have. You received it. You received it. It's an issue of ownership. And when I look at that, the, the, the overarching thing that we got to get down, and, and for many of you this is review, but it's, it's good review. It's something that we need to be reminded of constantly The issue of ownership, what is it that God owns? Well, if you're saved, he owns your whole life, does he not? I alluded to it. We're going to look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 say this. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God? And notice, ye are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Do you realize that your life is not your own? Do you realize that everything that is you, you who have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, everything that is your life has been bought and paid for by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And whatever it is about you, the fact that you're breathing free air right now is a gift from God. Everything about you. Let me remind you of another place. I love Colossians chapter 3. First four verses, Colossians chapter 3.
thinking, that's cool, he's been down to second or third anyway. <laughs> Maybe not. Jesus Christ wants to be all of your life. And, and you know what? When I say that, listen, you've got to get this. Because, quite frankly, all of your life, it, it, Jesus Christ has, he has the legal, rightful ownership of all that you are, of all who you are. I mean, if you truly are saved, if you truly have received him as your Lord and Savior, listen, he owns you. You, you, I hate to use this term because people take it the wrong way, but this is a good way to think about it. You sold out. It was a great deal, by the way. The greatest deal you ever made was selling yourself totally out to Jesus Christ. You gave him your rotten, stinking, selfish, sinful, dirty, pond scum. Can I go on? Light, mine too, by the way, for sure. And we got his glorious, sinless, eternal, perfect life in return. Best deal you ever made in your life. No question about it. No refunds necessary. I mean, that's what Jesus Christ did. And if you truly have received him as your Lord and Savior, that means that you made that deal. That means that when you bowed your head and prayed that prayer, you surrendered all that there is of you to him and his lordship. That's a word we use in church. Lordship means that Jesus is Lord. It doesn't just mean that he's Lord God over the universe. It means he's the Lord of your life. He's the boss. He's the one in charge. He's the owner. He's got it all. He's the rightful owner. And if when I say things like this, when I talk about how Jesus Christ owns you, you don't even exist in the equation. He is your life. If you hear that with any doubt, if you hear that thinking, no, that ain't me. I, I, I didn't do that. Can, can I respectfully point out that you're probably not saved. Because that is salvation. That is how it's defined. That is what it is. If you are saved, if you have eternal life, it's because you gave away yours to receive His. He owns you. And that's what He expects then. And if He owns you, if He owns all of your life, certainly He also owns the next thing I want to talk about, and that's your finances. He owns your finances. Because when we talk about stewardship, we typically land in the issue of money. And we'll talk about it a little bit today, but not that much. Don't panic. I want us to look together in Deuteronomy chapter 8. If you've got your Bibles, look in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And I'm not sure all these verses will pop up on the screen. I was going to just kind of paraphrase the story. I decided I'm just going to read it to you, okay? Deuteronomy chapter 8 is, the, if you don't understand the Bible that well, the book of Deuteronomy is the last book of Moses and, and basically the story of the books of Moses from Exodus through Deuteronomy are the children of Israel coming out of Egypt and going through the, the wilderness and ultimately to enter into the promised land. And the book of Deuteronomy is written basically as Moses, just before the children of Israel cross the river Jordan and enter into the promised land, Moses is going to die on this side of Jordan. God's not going to let him enter in the promised land. Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reminds the children of Israel basically of all the stuff they've already been told. And, and he's basically saying, look, when y'all go over without me, don't forget 
all this stuff. And the book of Deuteronomy is nothing more than a repeat of stuff they've already learned as they're being reminded last minute before they enter the promised land. Okay, And when they're going to enter this promised land, I mean, they are entering the land that flows with milk and honey. They've been in the desert. They've been drinking water out of a rock. They've been drink, eating the manna that falls down. For 40 years, they've been eating the same thing. It's like my poor dog. I give him the same junk every day. I mean, and that's what they've been getting, you know. That was weird. <laughs> and Moses reminds him, and, and he says this in Deuteronomy chapter. I'm going to start reading in verse number 7. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of oil, olive, and honey. Boy, this is good news for people who have been in the desert. A land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness. Thou shalt not lack anything in it. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he hath given thee. Then he goes on, he says, Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day. Lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein. Sound familiar? And when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thine heart is lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led thee through the great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and draught, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with, with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. And verses 17 and 18, the, the thing I want you to really see. And thou say in thine heart, when all that happens, and you say in your heart, my power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God For it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he sware unto thy fathers as it is this day. And God reminds them because he foresees the danger of, yes, you went through hard times, and yes, I sustained you, and I did all this for you. And now you're going to enter into the reward phase. Now you're going to enter into the phase of plenty. Beware, don't forget who gave it to you. Don't forget and think erroneously, my hand, my might, my power got me this wealth. Y'all have been made stewards of some amount of physical, material resource today in this day and time in which we live, 2013. You live in the wealthiest country in the world at a time of great plenty and abundance on the backs of generations of people who sacrificed so that you can have what you have. And together with the fact that the Lord God Almighty gives you the breath you breathe, the mind you use to think, the strength that you have to work, and all the opportunities of living within a society that afford you the opportunity to have the enormous abundance that you enjoy. Don't make the mistake into thinking that you are something so special 
that allows you to be that wealthy on the world's standards. Be humble. Don't forget where you came from. Don't forget what road you were on, let me say spiritually speaking at least, before you received Christ as your Savior. Remember that road? I do. Don't forget where you were headed before Jesus pulled you out of the miry clay and set your feet on that solid rock. Recognize that. Listen, God's entrusted you with something. We talk about financially. And, you know, for some of you, that might be around $30,000 a year, some 50, 70, 100, 250. I don't know what you make. Whatever it is, consider this. You currently have the stewardship over exactly the amount of resource that God can trust you with. Should I say that again? You currently are the steward over exactly the amount that God currently can trust you with. How's that hit you? (laughs) Can I say that if that doesn't hit you exactly, can I say that if if for some reason you're thinking, I don't know if that's true. I mean, I've just been out of work and I mean, you know, God can trust me with a whole lot more. I don't know why I don't have it. Maybe. um, Maybe there's another issue. And maybe that other issue is really what we need to talk about. Um, and that's the issue of contentment. Uh, we talked about the issue of ownership, and I, I want to talk about the issue of contentment. Because if your mind thinks, no, no, I got to get more, I got to get more, I got to get, I'm not satisfied, um, that's dangerous. Be, because to be content is to be satisfied. Uh, the opposite of being content is to be covetous. And that's not good. In other words, to be content, you're cool with what you got, (laughs) whatever that is, right? And we're going to look at that because that's a really important issue. Listen, of all the things God's entrusted to you, and it's not just the 50K or 100K or whatever it is that you might be able to make as a a hardworking employee, whatever it is you do, but I mean, God's entrusted to you all of your life, time, energy, wealth, talents, gifts, resources, relationships, all of these things, by the way, are the property of one Lord Jesus Christ. And He's allowed you to be a steward over it. That's awesome, by the way. That is a privilege. Man, thank God that He allows us to be able to do that. But He expects us to be content. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I want to look at just a few verses of scripture here that'll lay some of this out for us first timothy chapter six starts off verse number five i want us to see where it says talking about people who teach some false things and it says among them perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth notice supposing that gain is godliness from such which withdraw thyself so there will be people who have the wrong mindset their mindset is because i have a lot of stuff that means that I am godly, okay? The physical blessings equals I am godly, and that's erroneous. When people think that way, that's an error, and if you know people that think that way, the Bible says withdraw yourself from such people because what that does is it feeds your covetousness, see? But it goes on in the next verse, and it says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we carry nothing out, and having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. Okay? 
And so he says, look, there's nothing wrong. Whatever you have, if you truly have godliness, this, this standard of living a life, of a, of a virtuous life over time, okay, we saw that last week. And if you can do that with contentment, man, that is gain. That is the true riches. That is what you really want. And he, he, he bottom lines it for all of us. And he says, if you have food and clothes, be content. Be content. It's very interesting. If you look at the next verse I have in your list, Psalms 37, verse 25. This is David, he's king, and he's, he's, he's writing the Psalms under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, I've been young and now I'm old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. God takes care of his own. Amen? God takes care of his people. Now, at what level? You know, all he's trying to say is, look, you're not starving. You're not naked. We're cool. That's what he's saying. And God will make sure that he takes care of your needs. I didn't say wants. We're going to look in Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse number 11. Not that I speak in respect of want. By the way, in your King James Bible, when it uses the word want, you need to understand that most frequently that word literally means lack. There is no want in my life. In other words, there's nothing lacking. Okay, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Doesn't mean I don't ever want nothing. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack from anything because he's my shepherd, right? I and mean, that's, that's, that's the meaning of the word. I want you to understand that. Not that I speak in respect of want or lack, for I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both, Paul says, how to be abased. It means I got virtually nothing. <laughs> and I know how to abound. There were times in his life when he had lots. That's great. Everywhere and in all things, I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. And he says, look, the state in which I live, if my state is currently with much, praise God, I'm still trusting Christ. If my state is currently with minimal amounts, praise God, I still trust Christ. That's all that matters. And so the issue is never how much you have. The issue is always what your attitude is. It's always about your mindset. It's always about what you think about and how you deal with these things. God promises he will provide your needs and you trust Christ no matter your state of affairs. A little further down in Philippians chapter four, we get to verse number 19. But my God shall supply all your need, not wants, according to his riches and glory, by Christ Jesus. You believe that? You can talk. You can talk in church. You're officially given permission to talk in church. Talk to me, not to each other. Uh, you believe that? You believe that God, truly? I mean, truly, think about it. I mean, don't just say yes because you're supposed to now. My God shall supply all your need. Yeah, but I need something. Do you have it? No. We don't need it. Right? I mean, if you don't have something, you can want it. I'm not saying it's evil to want some stuff, okay? I'm just saying you don't need it. My guess is nobody in this room has been starving, and thankfully everybody is clothed. 
So we're good, right? We're good. Hebrews chapter 13. I love Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. Let your conversation be without covetousness. There it is. And be content, because those are opposite right there. And be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Verse 6, why? So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Do you see that? He says, look, don't, don't be covetous. Be content with whatever it is God has entrusted you with today. And why can you be and how can you be content with whatever it is you have? And, and, and most specifically, in this case, applying to those, who, those of us who might say we have barely enough. Now, maybe there's nobody in this room like that. I don't know. Maybe there is. But whenever you find yourself at a state, where, as Paul calls it, of being abased, you have barely enough. And, and your mind begins to wander. He says, why is it that I can be content with that? And he goes on and he gives this promise that so many Christians falsely apply to a different thing out of context. And he says, because the Lord promises us that he will never leave us and he'll never forsake us. We use that to say that we are eternally secure and you can't lose your salvation. And that is true. That's a true Bible doctrine. But that's not what Hebrews 13 is talking about. When God says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you, the direct context is, don't be covetous. Be content with what I have entrusted to you because I won't leave you. I've been young and now I'm old. I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. I'll make sure you're provided for. Do you believe, will you believe me? And when you will, thank you, then you can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do to me. Now maybe in this room there's very few people, I don't know, who have ever had to really put this in practice. Maybe there's very few of you, and, and, and you'd prefer it that way for sure, to ever find yourself in a situation where truly you didn't know where your next meal was coming from. But if somebody's ever been through that, my guess is they have some pretty cool stories to be able to tell that at the end of the day, I don't know how it happened. I can't figure it out on paper. I just know God provided. And to this very day, I can say, the Lord is my helper because I have lived, I can have that testimony, listen, by experience, not just in theory. We can all read the Bible and say, amen, that's a good thing, I'm in. I, I believe that. But how many of us can say that we know that by experience? Listen, I'm not telling you to give away all your stuff and go live in a shack. I'm not saying do that. And God's not saying do that. I'm just saying that when and if you ever find yourself in those situations, if you can apply the principle of contentment, what you will find is an overwhelming peace and provision from God Almighty who takes care of His children. It's a guarantee. And the witness that comes from that, the testimony that comes from that is bold, it's strong, it's powerful. I mean, think about it. When's the last time that's ever happened to you? That you were content with little. And you trust God because He never leaves you. And He provides because that's what He always does. He promises that He will. 
and you can boldly proclaim his faithfulness. By the way, if that has happened to you, man, that is, it's awesome. I know it doesn't sound like it sounds counterintuitive, but it's awesome because now you have a strength in God and your faith and your character and his ability to come through that has been proven and you've seen it and you've experienced it and you know that he did it then and he's going to do it again if it ever comes up again. And by the way, there's people out in this world who need to hear that. If that's ever happened to you, that's a great, great testimony. But the tough thing is, is that a lot of people will never experience that because a lot of people won't trust God to take care of them because a lot of people are too busy trusting themselves to provide for themselves. And yeah, we should work hard, and yeah, we should have that characteristic, and yeah, we live in a country that has a lot of, I I get it, I do. But at the same time, the attitude is contentment. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. The next verse, verse 7, oddly enough, interestingly enough, says this. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. I find that very interesting that that's the very next verse because what we're going to see is that plays into the very next point that I'm trying to bring up to you, and that's this. Before we saw how it applied to each and every one of us as individuals, in the second point I want us to see how it applies to all of us corporately as a body, not just individuals, but together as a body, the body of Christ, okay? How does this principle of stewardship excuse me, apply to all of us. And so we saw the issue of ownership and we saw the issue of contentment. Now we're going to look at the issue of leadership. The issue of leadership. Listen, in any group of people, you need leaders. I mean, you just need to have it. And everybody can't be a leader. Everybody can't be the decision maker, right? Uh, we used to say in Albania, you know, there's, there's too many chiefs and not enough Indians. Um, I mean, if everybody's a leader, ain't nobody turn around, nobody following because everybody's in charge, right? And uh, by the way, if, if you find, if you've ever been in a group where everybody's a leader, everybody thinks they are, and everybody's trying to run off and do their own thing, that ought to remind you Bible students, at least, of the book of Judges, right? Remember the theme through the book of Judges where it says, in those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Remember that? We call that chaos, we call that anarchy is what we call that okay and that's what was going on in the book of judges and that's what happens when you have a group and everybody's co-equally in charge of all the decisions that are being made it never works that way anytime god has a group he's always got some designated leaders and others that are supposed to follow that leadership so uh similar though to our individual life in christ the church is also god's property Okay, he bought each and every one of our lives, but corporately as a church also, as it says in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, Paul is returning from his last missionary journey. He's on his way back to Jerusalem. He's stopping by and checking in on the churches that he started and the groups of people. In Acts chapter 20, he eventually makes it to the city of Ephesus. When he gets to the city of Ephesus, one of the places that he loved, he calls the elders of the church and he gathers them together and he wants to hang out with them a little bit as he's on his way back to Jerusalem. So he gathers the elders and in verse number 28 of Acts 20 it says this as Paul's talking to him, take heed therefore unto yourselves you elders of the church and to all the flock 
over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you, elders, overseers, managers, stewards, to feed the church of God, which he, God, hath purchased with his own blood. So, amen, the church of God is the property of God Almighty. He purchased it with his own blood. It is the church. We corporately together as a body are God's property, and there are stewards, elders, pastors that are, that are chosen. They, they, are, they have to be qualified, and they are ordained, and they are set aside to be the stewards over the management of God's business in his church. And that's an important thing because as in any group, every member can't be the decision maker. It would be chaos. It would be the book of Judges. It would be crazy and God sets up this system. I want to point out some of these principles to you as we walk through. This is important. First Timothy chapter 3. We've looked at this in the not too distant past. First Timothy chapter 3 starts out talking about the qualifications for somebody who would strive to be what the Bible calls a bishop in this context, in this passage, he's also called a pastor or an overseer or an elder or some of those other places, okay, a shepherd. And it says in 1 Timothy 3, 1 and 2, it's a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. So the position of being a bishop or a pastor is an office. It's an official office. And it is, can I just tell you, a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And so you have to be qualified. And it has, the verses go on and on with all the list of qualifications, okay? He must be blameless, and it just goes on. I want us to jump down to verse number four, one particular qualification that's going to apply really well. And it goes on verses four and five. It says, One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. And verse five, For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? And so among the things that God looks for, he looks for a man who has proved himself to have done a faithful job with his own wife and children and his household and the management of his affairs and stewardship, financial material, human resources, all of those things, and has proven himself in his own family because the ultimate goal is not just to have a good family. That's a great thing. But it's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to lead God's church. God bought the church. The church belongs to him. And he's like, I'm going to let some of you guys be the stewards over this enormous, precious resource. And before I put you in that position, I want to make sure that you kind of know what you're doing. <laughs> and so you check out a guy's family, and that all makes sense, and that's all fine. But you've got to understand that the goal is the family of God. That's the ultimate goal. It's how we manage God's business in the family of God. In fact, specifically in Titus chapter 1, parallel passage, and verse number 7, it says, for a bishop must be blameless, and he adds, as the stewards or the steward of God. And so it's, that's our job. I mean, that's the specific job description and duty of those of us who have been given this calling and this job to do. And I realize for most of you sitting here, you're like, praise God, it ain't mine. Good, good for you. Thank God for you, or whatever, hopefully say that. Uh, anyway, but thank God it's not me. How about that? And I just want you to see this in the context of which it's given. If you jump down to the end of 1 Timothy chapter 3, we get the context of all these things. 
Again, reinforced in verse 14, where he says, Paul to Timothy, he says, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. How should we behave ourselves within the context of the corporate body of the family of God? Well, all those things are the things that we read in the first 13 verses of 1 Timothy chapter 3. And so he lays out the structure of leadership. He lays out the qualifications for such people, for pastors, and then, la- then, then for deacons and their families. And that's all laid out in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And he says, the reason I'm giving this to you is that in my house, there's got to be order. In my house, there's got to be structure. Somebody's got to be the responsible steward. Somebody has to be faithful. Somebody has to care for what I gave my son's life for for a period of time because I'm coming back because I'm coming back and so leaders in a church have a particular stewardship we all have a stewardship over what God's given to each and every one of us but the leaders of a church have a particular stewardship over the body of the church I don't know if you can appreciate the gravity of what what I just said I do I feel the weight Okay, it is an awesome privilege and an incredible responsibility all at the same time. The Bible says in Ephesians that Jesus Christ gave his life for the church. He loves the church. And so the steward has for sure a greater reward available to him, but he also has a greater responsibility at the same time. And so we look in 1 Timothy chapter 5, and it says this in verse 17. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of, notice, double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. So if a man has that responsibility, that stewardship, labor in God's word, in the study of it, in the understanding of it, in the proclamation and teaching of it, it says if he does that job well, He's worthy of double rewards. So that's cool, okay? I mean, that's, that's an important thing. And why? Because God loves the church. And if you do a good job of leading and teaching and feeding and caring for the church that I love, I died for, now I'll take care of you. I got your back. I'll take care of you. But at the same time, God loves the church, man, don't blow it. And I'm talking to me. I get it. James chapter 3 and verse number 1. My brethren, be not many masters, teachers, leaders, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation or judgment. So yeah, there's the opportunity for great rewards. There's for sure great responsibility. And great scrutiny. In other words, it comes down to the issue of accountability, doesn't it? God will call into account his stewards. He has entrusted things to each of us. He's entrusted things to some of us in a corporate way. In every case, whatever you find yourself a steward over, God will call each and every one of us into account. Luke chapter 16 is without a doubt the definitive passage of Scripture 
that describes, and it uses the word steward or stewardship more frequently than anywhere else in all the Bible. And I want us to look briefly in Luke 16. It starts off and it says in verse number one, and he said also unto his disciples, this is a parable Jesus is giving to teach a lesson. And he says, there was a certain rich man which had a steward. And the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. So certainly the the rich man, God Almighty, okay, has stewards. And at the end, there will be a time when he will call into account his stewards and he says, Hey, give an account. Give an account. If you have wasted my goods... Your life, your money, your resources. By the way, that's my life, my money, my resources. I've allowed you to manage them. If you have wasted them, then there will be a judgment. Okay? And so if it's corporately, and we're talking about pastors, we're talking about how pastors give an account for what they teach, for how they manage or lead the church, And notice he says, if you've wasted my goods, give an account, for you may no longer be steward. The stewardship is removed. Because unwise stewardship results in, hear me, removal of the position. Removal of the position. It's it's true of anyone who's a steward in another man's business, right? You hire somebody to manage your business, say you're a business owner, and they botch it up, and eventually you fire them. You have to. That's, That's a biblical principle. As I was studying this this week, I couldn't help but think, oh my. Do you ever wonder, and I'm not, I don't know, God knows, but do you ever wonder why sometimes pastors of churches lose their stewardship and it's not necessarily a moral failure god says maybe you've wasted my goods maybe you haven't been a good steward maybe you haven't been faithful maybe you haven't been wise pastors give account for those things you know what else pastors give account of look in hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17 Hebrews 13, 17 says this, Obey them that have the rule over you, we've defined who all those people are, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. So pastors give an account for how well you all follow the direction that God set in place through the steward. That's an accountability that I will have to give. God will have a series of questions. I don't know how it'll play out, but something to the effect of, okay, so um, what did you teach them? Of course, he knows whether I, you know, say, I don't know. Yeah, okay. (laughs) What did you teach them? How did you lead them? Did you give the right direction? Did you give the right understanding? Did you give the right doctrine? Did you give the right teaching? And then the questions turn to, how did they follow? And somewhere in the exchange, however that plays out at the judgment seat of Christ, there's something about leaders of the body giving an account. And if the accounting of your fellowship is not good, that's not good for you. That's what it says in Hebrews 13. So there's an accounting that's necessary. 
So we talk about the issue of leadership in a body, and that's so important, but I, I want to talk about the issue of investment, and this is our last point. Luke chapter 12 and verse 42. And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? You see, God definitely overwhelmingly talks about the steward needing to be faithful, but he also talks about him needing to be wise. So there's one thing about being faithful. There's yet another issue of being wise, of being strategic. Because a wise steward manages the wealth of his master well. And if he makes investments, and he needs to make investments that return a profit. Now, we're not going to study the passage, but in Luke chapter 19, I have the reference in your notes from verse 11 to verse 27. It's the story of a nobleman, okay, a wealthy, royal family, a nobleman, okay, who has great wealth, and he's going to take a journey to a far country, and he ultimately calls in 10 servants, and he's going to return after some time. Okay, so it's a stewardship story. And, and he calls his ten servants in and he tells them, he gives them this command and he says, if you remember the phrase, he says, occupy till I come. Now, when we, say, when we think occupy, we think... I got it. I got my seat. I'm occupying it, man. I'm sitting in it. Uh, again, 17th century English. Occupy does not mean sit down and, you know, be quiet. It does not mean that. Occupy means buy, sell, trade, turn a profit. That's what it means. Because when he gives out the money, okay, and then, so he gives them a pound each. And so, you know, he goes out and he comes back and he takes a count. And a lot of you are familiar with the story. One guy, he received one pound. And when the master comes back, he says, look, your one pound has gained ten pounds and he's like wow well done way to go awesome the next guy says you gave me one pound and i've returned it into five pounds well done great job and the last guy says you know what you get stuff where you don't even sew and you're a hard man and strict and i didn't invest your money at all i hid it in this napkin and buried it in the ground and i just been sitting on it the occupy like we think <laughs> And uh, here's, here's, your, here's your pound back. And that guy's rebuked. Now, that guy did not lose any of the master's wealth. He didn't lose a bit of it. But he didn't gain a profit. And he rebukes him. Why? What did he do? He disconnected. He didn't even get in the game. He didn't even try. He didn't engage. He didn't do anything. He was given this amazing wealth of resource. By the way, we have been giving the amazing wealth of the resource of the Holy Spirit of God living in our hearts and the Word of God in our hands and the mind of Christ and the gospel that sheds life to people who are on their way to hell and we just sit on it and don't engage. And he's like, wow, that is not a wise steward. So take the pound from that guy and give it to the guy who's already got 10 because that guy knows how to do what I want done. How do we invest financially? How should we do that? You can apply this to yourself as an individual. We can apply that to us as a body of a church. Clearly, without question, biblically, the answer is according to the master's will. (laughs) You invest the money however the guy who owns the money wants it invested right? And so let me remind you of something you should be reminded of if you've been coming to this church for any time. 
we have seven biblical values that we lay out for you in the form of a balanced diagram, okay? And the things that God's will clearly describes to us, we have uh, depicted for you in this manner. Basically, Jesus refers to two great things. One is called his great commandment, which is on the left side of that balanced diagram, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And the right hand of that balanced diagram is what we call the Great Commission. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Ghost, and, and teach them to observe all things. Okay. And so on the left side of that diagram, what we deal with is the things that have to do with who we are. Who we are as believers in Jesus Christ. We love God and we love people. That's who we are. Okay. Those are more qualitative things. But on the right hand of the diagram is not so much who we are, it's what we do. We evangelize. We tell people the gospel. We share that with them. We make disciples of those that respond to that to grow them up in the faith. We, we establish churches in places where they don't already exist and we partner with people and try and get this gospel out to the entire world. It's the great commission. We're to be witnesses unto him both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth all concurrently. That's what we're to do. How should we invest? We invest however the master wants it invested. What does he emphasize? He emphasizes a great commandment and a great commission. You know what? Who we are, there's ways to invest in who we are to make us better people. We have a seminar on marriage. That'll be awesome. But the majority of the financial expense that we invest really goes into not so much who we are as it is what we do, right? And what we do is reach out to people with the gospel. That's what God's heart is. That's what he's all about, right? That's who he is, right? That's his heartbeat. That's why we're here today. And you know what? We're going to give an account for how we manage his resources. We cannot allow ourselves to spend recklessly or emotionally. We have a biblical responsibility. It would be wrong to do any otherwise. Listen, we cannot spend thinking that there will be no accountability, that there's no review, because we measure the results of our investments in light of the objectives. Are we getting the gospel to every creature? Are people actually getting saved? Are those people actually being discipled? Are those disciples being established in local churches? Are, is that being propagated and multiplied out to the whole world? Those are the objectives. Jesus said in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And you know what? There's just this principle that your heart follows your treasure. You invest a big wad of money in the stock exchange, you will begin to read the Wall Street Journal. It's just a natural phenomenon of life. You invest a big wad of your change in the kingdom of God, your heart starts to be interested in your investment. It just is. And that's the principle God gives us. Look, we're not going to talk about personal investing. That's a subject for another day, okay? But really, I just want you to see this issue of investment. It's critically important. You know what? First and foremost, God is a missionary God, is he not? His will is to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus Christ left glory. He came to this foreign land, planet Earth, 
and died on a cross so that we could have the free gift of eternal life. That's what he did. That is who he is. He is a missionary God. I'm a missionary pastor. Uh, friends of mine would say, you know, once a missionary, always a missionary. Some people like that about me. Some people don't. <laughs> I don't really care. I, I mean that with all respect. I don't really care. It's who I am. Um, and it's not just because I lived in a foreign country. It's just a heart and a mind that says there's more people out there that need the gospel and we are flat running out of time. But as your pastor, I recognize I am accountable to Almighty God for what I teach you, how I lead you, and how you respond for sure, but, but how we as a body invest wisely. That's my responsibility. We have to be good stewards. And such investments require measurable accountability. But you know what? God's a missionary God. I'm a missionary pastor. You're to be missionaries too. You really are. And my favorite quote of all time I placed in your notes for you. A missionary is not someone who crosses the seas, but someone who sees the cross. That, that's worth writing in the flap of your Bible if you want to. A missionary is not someone, it's not geographic. It's an attitude. You could cross the seas, you could cross the street. You could cross the cubicle at your office to talk to somebody else. We are here on a mission to reach other people for the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have your own personal level of accountability and stewardship of resources that God has given to you. And if you're a young person and you don't have any income, you've got your life, you've got your friends, you've got your health, you've got relationships, you've got all kinds of things that you are a steward of and you will be answerable to God for. How did you leverage the, your stewardship of the gifts God's given you to help your friends come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? That's an important thing. And for a lot of us who have worked many years of our lives and have amassed some level of material resource, we're accountable for those things as well. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, is that will we be faithful and wise stewards? It's required in a man, a steward, that a man be found faithful. That's what God requires. And that's what I want us to consider as we go to prayer. Let's pray together.